The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Ms. Sharon, would you turn on the second one on the bottom, a little higher, uh, the other side? Uh, the second one over. Yeah, that one. Okay. And you can put the sconces back on too. That's the first switch on your uh, left. For the last couple of weeks, um, we've been looking at Jack Hornfield's chapter in the book, The Wise Heart, chapter 22, which is on this Bodhisattva ideal. And, um, Bodhisattva sometimes uh, refers to this motivation to live and practice for the benefit of all beings. And of course, this can become very idealistic, it can become even sentimental, but that's not really the point. The point is to see that the pragmatic, practical, skillful way to organize our life really. And it's not like if we said, okay, you have to live in practice for the benefit of all beings, it would be easy to be overwhelmed by that and to give up. But it's different when we say, ask the question, can we aspire to care for all beings, including ourselves? And that seems to be in the realm of what's possible. Yeah, we can aspire to live for the benefit of all beings. This is from something Joseph Goldstein wrote about bodhicitta, which is a related concept in Buddhist practice. Bodhicitta means awakened heart. And Joseph Goldstein writes, but is, this, but is this a realistic aspiration for us? Is it really possible to cultivate such an altruistic motivation, given the great mix of qualities within our own minds? Even the Dalai Lama has said, I cannot pretend to practice bodhicitta, but deep inside of me, I realize how valuable and beneficial it is. That is all. If we too can realize how valuable and beneficial it is, then we simply plant the seed of bodhicitta in our minds and slowly let it grow and take root in our lives. We might begin each day or each period of meditation with the resolve, may I quickly attain liberation for the welfare and happiness of all beings. We then go from the understanding that our Dharma practice inevitably helps others to, to making the benefit for others the very motivation to practice. This change of understanding has a transforming effect on how we move through the day. And that's part of where we ended last week. Susan, can we turn the top two up a little bit more? Yeah, thanks. That's where we ended last week, is just with this question. Now, as we, we are living this life, we're living in this world, so then the question is, as we open to our life, to the world, do we find it deadening or do we find it enlivening? So I want to talk a little bit about sometimes, maybe a lot of the time, our relationship with the whole world 
is deadening in one way or another. And how at other times, maybe as we practice more and more often, opening to life as it is, whether it's local or global, is enlivening for us. And, you know, it's not that hard for us to remember, maybe some of us are right in the middle of it right now, to remember how deadening our relationship to the world can be. I mean, how many of us at some point today felt pretty cynical about things? Or even betrayed, like the world has betrayed us. We read the news or we hear about something our friend has done, and it feels like a betrayal, or we just have this cynical sense that, you know, nobody knows what they're doing, the whole thing's screwed up, you know, somebody's broken the world, and there ain't any putting it back together again. And that's just how it is. Can we use some of these ideas, this perspective, to justify not having to care? You know, when we have that cynical view or that despairing view, it's like easy to just do whatever we want because it's already broken, so why bother? They've already screwed it up. You know, those whoever those bad guys are, they screwed it up. Or maybe we blame ourselves, maybe we think we screwed it up. But in any case, we feel like it's okay to give up. We have given ourselves permission to give up. We don't actually have to care about our life, about our family, about I mean, maybe we need to just because it's politically incorrect not to care. But deeper inside, we don't really care. We're not moved to act. And then we can also, you know, slide into just a more depressive, so less cynical but more depressive, where it just feels really heavy. Responding, we see some trash in front of our house or our apartment. You know, we could pick it up, but it's just too much of a bother to pick up the trash. It's too much of a bother to be kind to the person at the checkout line. You know, everything just feels like bother, especially in the humid weather, heat of the summer. You know how that is, where we just, I just, all I can do is get to my bed at the end of the day. And again, this is, you know, each one of these ways that we, that I'm calling deadening, you know, ways of being in the world that are deadening, you see how it squeezes us off from life, squeezes the heart off, but we're disconnecting from the moment, either because it feels too heavy, it's too heavy to show up, it's too heavy to connect with whatever's in front of us, whether it's, like I said, a piece of trash on the street. So we find a way, you know, we have a story, like it's too much, and then we don't have to connect. We can get into anger and rage and blaming and being critical. And that's its own little bubble. It's another way to disconnect, where the drama of our idea that this person is wrong, this person is stupid, they did the wrong thing, they broke it, those people, and that rage, it uh, again, it makes it so that we don't have to respond in a positive way in our lives. We do that with our partners sometimes, where we feel that they have, um, you know, they're responsible for the relationship not working, 
and um, it's like we don't have to fix it because they broke it. You know, it's their fault, and we can we feel justified resting in our anger. And it's like a protection, of course. It's a deal with the devil because when we get caught in anger, we cut ourselves off from everything. Because in order to be fixated on our anger, we have to be disconnected from everything else. That's true with any of these, you know, ways that are bending. They all involve somehow cutting ourselves off. Another way, maybe surprising way, we cut ourselves off is we get really involved. It's like we, to some degree, are sensitive to what's around us, whether it's very local, you know, taking care of ourselves, family, or out in the world taking care of. And we start feeling responsible to take care of. We start doing things, and we do more and more. And we start getting attached, like we're, we have this idea, this stronger and stronger idea that it has to be fixed. I have to take care, like if you feel a lot of shape. So in a very local way, we can get obsessed about getting back into shape and then obsessed about eating and obsessed about what other people are eating and and this itself becomes a kind of violence when we feel overly responsible because what happens is we start to get exhausted and you know how that is, you get exhausted and then it, and then the work that we're so sure needs to be done we start to do it in a more and more aggressive way. We start to push and pull and hurry. And even the people we care most about, you know, we can be quite aggressive when they're in the way of our great projects, the things that we know need to be done. We can justify all kinds of violence. There's that famous uh, paragraph from Thomas Merton. He says, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit to too many projects, to want to help everyone in every way, is itself to succumb to the violence of our times. Frenzy destroys our inner capacity for peace. It destroys the fruitfulness of our work because it kills the roots of inner wisdom, which makes work fruitful. So the root of inner wisdom means that there's some alignment between the means and the end. If we really want the world to be a good place, the means to that goodness has to be good too. We can't be frenzied. We can't even be hurried because it contaminates the whole project. Our fear, our greed contaminates. Corrupted. And we can even get, you know, in bubbles, disconnect, be deadened by our distractions, whatever it might be, or a little obsession. You know, we could be moved, feel sensitive to the world, and then what do we do? We tackle one little thing, and we become completely obsessed about it. Our neighbor, for example, has a big maple tree, and those little twirly things land in our yard. But somehow it just seems so relevant that the first thing that needs to be done to make the world a better place is to somehow talk to my neighbor about these squirrely things. Or whatever it might be, their dog barking at night. And I'm not saying these things are necessarily insignificant, 
but to notice when our mind makes one thing the most important thing. And, uh, and it's, it can be a way of distracting ourselves. Like you might remember long ago in the movie Annie Hall, and they're there in the bedroom, Annie Hall and Woody Allen, and he's pacing back and forth trying to figure out how, whether there was more than one shooter in the JFK assassination. And Annie Hall says, you know, I think you're just avoiding a relationship or something like that. And Woody Allen looks into the camera and says, yeah, I think, I think she's right. So it's like, it could seem really important to figure out, like, how did that happen? Or, you know, was the, the Twin Towers, the collapse of the Twin Towers, is that a CIA plot or not? I mean, and we can, we could spend many lifetimes trying to figure these things out. You know, whatever your particular obsession or conspiracy might be. And in doing so, we could cut ourselves off from our cat, from our lover, from our family, from our community, from the whole world. You know, we're just in that bubble because this is what's important. So we, and it, it can seem, within the bubble, it can seem like I'm really giving myself over in a really good way, just as important. But we need to step outside. We have to, like our actions have to, have to be in the context of everything. You know, it's being sensitive to everything. Then we know what to do in life. We don't really know what to do if we're cut off, if we're in a bubble of one sort or another. So these are just ways, hopefully you recognize some of them, pretty universal it seems, that we get in a dead place in life, cut ourselves off. So how, how is this experience of being enlivened by opening, you know, enlivened to want to live and practice for the benefit of all? Uh, enlivened meaning feeling, um, feeling moved by life, moved in a fearless and beautiful way. And one of the first things that enlivens our life is just, you know, when we, you know, when we, that first movement of just sort of waking up, opening up our eyes, listening, feeling, it's a, it depends on a dropping away of arrogance. There has to be a basic humility. You know, if we think we already know, we can't open. So when we open to the world, there's a sense of awe and humility and uh, maybe even a deep respect. That we're respecting that the mind can't grasp. Like, no matter what our opinion is, it's not capable of grasping the way that it is, the world. Like it's too simplistic to think that we should raise taxes, we shouldn't raise taxes, the Fed should get involved, the Fed shouldn't get involved, you know, or whatever. Like opinions that we think, you know, this, this is the problem, we just need to do this. The first step is really that uh, kind of opening, maybe you could call it the mystery, or as Jack uh, Tibet Zinn entitled his well-known book about the mindfulness-based stress reduction. He used the word full catastrophe living. Right? So the, the full catastrophe of life, the great mystery of birth and death, 
We need to open to that with humility, and we need to feel moved by that and a sense of respect for how little we know. And that's enlivening. That's not deadening. You know, it's interesting that we'd be afraid of that humility when it's so enlivening. We feel so awake and enlivened when we're in that place. As soon as we have an arrogant sense of what's right and wrong, we're already feeling a little dead. And then with whatever energy we have left, we have to defend our opinion against all the other opinions out there, which is even more deadening. You know, for me to constantly be thinking about how your opinion is wrong is deadening. It, like, cuts me off from just being present in life. And if I have a strong opinion, you know, psychologically, the sense of self is tied to that. So, in that sense, the sense of self is also threatened by other opinions, other views. So we really get ourselves in a tight, narrow place. So we can feel enlivened by just opening to the mystery. A sense of awe for the full catastrophe of this life. And that strips away a lot of superficiality. Like a lot of the things that seemed important a moment ago, all of a sudden are important. You know, it's like when we're in a bubble, it can seem really important what, you know, what our next smartphone is going to be. But when we're in that other place, it's like it doesn't really matter. It doesn't mean we're not going to get a phone or we are going to get a phone. It's just not anywhere close to what the mind needs to do right now. We'll take care of that when, it, you know, when it's time. But we don't get involved in superficial things. We don't use superficial things to fill up the space of our lives. Think about how much we do that, whether it's through media, you know, reading things, watching things, reading catalogs and deciding whether we need things or not, talking to people about things we don't really need to talk about. We fill up so much of the space. So when we open to the world and the suffering and the beauty in the world, we have that sense of awe and respect and humility and superficiality begins to fall away. And that's also enlivening. In the same way that being caught up in what's superficial is deadening. And then another way is that, uh, you know, the more we open, the more we realize the heart, the mind's capacity to include everything. It's like, we think, like, well, I just can't go there. You know, I, I just don't want to read about Somalia or Syria or I don't want to read about money and politics. I don't want to read about why the motives of the possible motives of that person in uh, the suburbs of Denver. I just, because we feel like I, the heart doesn't know how to include these things. But one of the things about being open and in that place of awe and the dropping away of superficiality is that we realize, I talked about this last week, this great space of the heart. It's like the heart isn't this small thing that gets filled up and then, okay, sorry, can't take in anymore. That's just not the nature of the mind or heart. It doesn't have boundaries, actually. I mean, you could look right now. Can you find the boundary of your mind or heart, like where it can't go? Are there any limits to your mind? Any place you can't go? That's shut off? 
So this is the thing about the heart. It can include everything. And in, in a way, it's designed to be all-inclusive. It's not designed to be exclusive. It takes a lot of work to make the mind, the heart, exclusive. It's sort of like who's on the inside, who's on the outside. This is also deadening. You know, that work of creating boundaries is deadening. So when we're not doing that, it's very enlivening. So just notice this capacity of the heart to include everything. So when all of a sudden you're in the car and you happen to have the news on and you hear about one of those tragedies like what happened in Denver, you know, and that, you, you get that sort of habit recoil, like, you know, you just, you don't want to shut it off or you want to, you know, blame somebody, the NRA, for allowing so many guns and, and you realize, oh, it's just a way of the heart shutting, shutting itself off. And we just say, well, just ask, you know, honey, you know, heart, can you include this too? Can you let this in? Can you let this be this great part of this great mystery? We don't have to understand it. We don't have to define it. We just need to be moved by what we're hearing or what we're seeing or what we're feeling. Just let the heart be touched, willing to be intimate and exposed and undefended. And this is the... This is very enlivening, this uh, experience of not needing boundaries, realizing the heart doesn't need boundaries, doesn't need any habit of exclusivity, cutting things off. You know, and a lot of us do this chronically. When my wife pushes my button, my habit is to cut her off, you know, psychologically, emotionally, you know, sometimes out loud. You know, I can't deal with this anymore. I'm done, leave the room, you know, that kind of, I'm assuming others do this. <laughs> but, but so much more often, not necessarily in an outward way, but just in an inward way, you know, where I might be going through the motions of being in relationship, but I'll kind of cut myself off. It's like, uh, somehow this person, you know, she doesn't deserve my full, loving presence, my sensitivity, my, I don't need to be exposed, you know, I can't trust her because she's not who I thought she was, you know, so I have to protect myself by putting myself in a little narrow box, which is, I've been hurt, that's my little narrow box, or it isn't fair, she doesn't understand me, or, you know, whatever sort of little story that we use to build a little box that we go sit inside of, you know. And then it really hurts being in that little constricted space, but the way it has that kind of uh, sort of supports itself is that we think, well, because I'm hurting, that means I'm right that she's bad. Even though we've created our own little help, you know, by putting ourselves in that little box, creating a sense of boundaries. Another way that opening to the whole world, the messiness, the catastrophe of the world, the difficulty and the beauty, the way that it's energized and our enlivening is that we start to have insight and we see that whether you're looking just at your own mind, your own obsessive, addictive patterns, your own fear patterns, your own greed patterns, or you're looking at the whole world. So whether you're looking very locally or globally, what starts to arise the more we trust opening 
and being vulnerable is we see the whole thing is made up of intention. It's like what this is right now is just the natural unfolding of all the intentions that were before. This is what the present moment is. Like the Buddha said something, like if you want to know the past, take a good look at the present. Because the way that your personal experience is right now is arising out of the intentions that occupied your mind in the past. So if you were dwelling in this kind of way, in that kind of way, involved in this sort of habit and that sort of habit, then the way it is right now is the natural continuation of what came before. And if, you're, if you want to know the future, look at the kind of intentions and motivations that are present in our minds right now. Because we are sowing the seeds for the future right now. That's a scary thought. When you think about how much lying is going on, how much fear is going on, how much greed is going on, and then we think about what we're setting as a culture in motion, well, it's a little frightening. It's appropriate to frighten us. It's enlivening, isn't it, to see it that way. It enlivens us. It motivates us to pay close attention to our intentions because it's the one thing we can do to change how things are unfolding. So I could sit here and be sensitive to the world and be freaked out and involved, get involved in a lot of fear and paranoia, or I could be sensitive to how it is now and, to, and have that insight that, oh my God, the whole thing is coming out of intention. What can I do? What one thing can I do now to make the world a better place? Well, I could be relating to this mess with forgiveness, with wisdom, with this clarity, this truthfulness, this honesty, with kindness. Now that's setting something else in motion, isn't it? Something really healing and beautiful in motion. Imagine if everybody on this planet right now took a good look and responded with compassion, like letting their hearts break. Oh my God, we've created a bit of a hell realm here on this planet. I care about this mess. I feel moved to do something beautiful and good, however simple that might be. Well, the world would change very quickly if we were all moved in that way. So this insight into the power of intention and how so much of this messiness that we experience in the world comes up, both the beautiful part of the mess and the difficult part of the mess, all of it is arising due to intentions in the mind, the view of the mind. And then the more we see that, you know, that, uh, that the importance of intention, we really get that closing the heart off doesn't make sense anymore. It just doesn't make sense to go back to any of our little boxes, whatever they might be. We'll try, of course, to go back to our little boxes, our little obsessions, our little addictions, our strong opinions, but it won't be the same. It's like the little boxes don't work anymore because we realize there's this whole world, you know, it's like we can't forget it. There's this whole big, beautiful, messy world out there, in here. We can't really cut ourselves off. And this is enlivening, too. It's like uh, 
someone once said, it's like a porcupine going down a drain pipe. There's no going back. And after a certain point, we realize that it's like, as the heart opens, and we, we start to be more sensitive. And it, in a way, it's a little bit overwhelming, or a lot overwhelming. But we realize there's no going back. It's like there's no way to convince the mind to live in a closed way. Because it, it already knows it's not that. It only works when the mind really believes that that narrow place is the truth. You know, so whatever particular prejudice we have, I still may have my inclinations to be prejudiced in the way that I've been conditioned. But now my mind doesn't believe it fully anymore, right? Still there. We have to be honest about our conditioning. But we can also be truthful that it doesn't make sense. That we're inclined to be reactive or inclined to be defensive or inclined to be greedy. But it doesn't make sense anymore. It doesn't make sense to get lost in those patterns. And then we start to feel joy. It's like the joy of this healing, this awakening process. Even though we're not done with our practice, we might be right at the very beginning, but there's a lot of joy kind of an inspiration that there is a path of awakening, there is a path of opening, and this is very enlivening. There's a lot of joy to have found a way, to, like, to realize that running and hiding and getting involved in greed and in anger and delusion isn't the way. There's a lot of freedom in knowing that. That's not a small thing. So this also is very enlivening and brings up a lot of resilience. So then, when we do get caught in our own patterns, we, we take the punches, you know, it's like, it's okay. It's okay when we become a despicable human being and do something stupid, close down, you know, become a fundamentalist about something or whatever. Because it's like, we know that the, this process of awakening can't be stopped, ultimately. It can be hindered can be slowed down, we can get caught in little eddies here and there, but not forever. If you had a chance to read uh, Jack Kornfield's chapter, he, he describes this training ground, and I think it's okay to activate some of that romantic energy, you know, all of us, because we grew up, it doesn't matter probably where we grew up, because in any culture, we have these superheroes, saints. You know, and generally what defines these superheroes is that they give themselves over for the benefit of all beings, right? Like Robin Hood or Kuan Yin, you know, in the Chinese Buddhist tradition. Or whoever, Superman, or Superwoman, <laughs> you know? And the thing is, uh, in some of the better stories, the hero is transformed by giving themselves over you know, giving themselves to what is completely unworkable, completely impossible. You think about somebody like Martin Luther King. I mean, imagine somebody having the sense of uh, wanting to turn racism around in this country, given the history. You know, and the, you know, the sort of uh, how he must have, in one way or another, been enlivened by that cause. Because how else? You kind of keep, you know, every day starting over 
and putting up with the, the roadblocks. So I think it's important for us to identify whoever, whatever resonates for us, identify some of these archetypal heroes, these people, whether they're you know historic folks or somebody that we've made up as a culture that gave themselves over for the benefit of all and uh, and how transforming that was. There's just, you know, the legend of the Buddha. <laughs> they talk about it beginning an incalculable number of eons before the historic Buddha some 2,500 years ago. So I think as they describe it in the tradition, you know, many, 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 many expansions and contractions of the universe. So lots of big bangs and then total contractions and big bangs. So way back a long time ago, there was a guy called Sameda. Now this is the Buddha before he was the Buddha. Another way they describe how long ago that was is like if a crow flew past a mountain of solid rock seven miles across at its base, seven miles high at its peak, and every hundred years the crow flew by and dragged a silk scarf across the tip. As long as it would take to erode that mountain that way, that's one eon. So an incalculable number of those. <laughs> it's a long time. And the idea is that this person, Sumedho, way back when, had the aspiration to become a powerful teacher because he was moved about the suffering and wanted, wanted to be a teacher when teachings were necessary, when there was no other teacher around. That's a beautiful myth of this motivation. Like, and then uh, later, in the Buddhist tradition, there arose this whole literature called the Jataka Tales. Maybe some of you have read some of them. Many of them have been made into children's books now. You can find them. And they're just stories. The Buddha taking birth as an animal, basically every kind of animal, sometimes as human, and learning different lessons that would eventually lead to him being a wise teacher and have all the skills necessary to not just have insight, but be able to articulate what he came to understand about his own mind so that other people could have the same insight that he had, the same awakening that he had. So what makes the Buddha different than a, a normal person who awakens is the Buddha does it without any help, because there's no teaching. That's by definition, a Buddha takes birth before becoming the Buddha. They take birth at a time when there aren't these wise teachings available. And they come to that understanding without the support of the teachings. And then they're able to articulate the teachings in a way that other people can get it. And so in this way, and you know, it's pretty amazing, 2,500 years later, this one person who had some deep insight into his own mind and was able to talk about it in a way that 2,500 years later in a completely different culture, these teachings are still really moving, practical, transforming for us. And it's not just the Buddha, there are many of these people that are still inspiring us. You know, I mentioned a few that are inspiring. So we want to hold up, like, why not have this aspiration for ourselves? Like, what is the harm? Of, why not aspire to the highest, most beautiful goal or aspiration to live and practice in a way that really makes a difference in our own hearts, in our own lives, and in the whole world? 
one way this vow is articulated is we imagine all of the goodness that human beings have set in motion. All of the small little moments of generosity throughout human history. All the moments of patience. All the moments of people being clear and wise and skillful. And you see it as a very deep and powerful river. After this stream of wholesomeness, of goodness. And then we vow that, that may this life join that stream of causes and conditions leading to real peace, the awakening, the liberation, the freedom of all beings. And so we can find a way to visualize that, to kind of tap, tap into some archetypes so that we can energize our life, enliven our life in this way. Because it's very easy, I'm sure you've noticed, it's very easy through the ways I mentioned, depression, cynicism, distraction, it's very easy to cut ourselves off and to feel quite dead in life. Here we are, a living being, just feeling quite trapped. Trapped by our habits, trapped by our beliefs. And, uh, and really without me in our life. So Jack Hornfield in this book, he gives three aspects of the training. So now that we've aspired to be a superhero, and we got to, you know, this is part of that story, right? You got to go through the, the torturous training, right, to be the superhero. So, Jack Hartfield mentions three things that make a lot of sense. And you're going to like the first one because he says we have to, we have to, the first training is this commitment to peace, the commitment to balanced mind, balanced heart. That, that's the first, there's no step first before that step. We're of no value to ourselves or to anyone if the mind is in shambles, is it frazzled, is upset, reactive. I remember a powerful story. Um, some of you know about Thich Nhat Hanh, one of the better known Buddhist monks and teachers throughout the world from Vietnam. He was a real activist during the Vietnam War and, and uh, organized other Buddhist monks and Buddhist nuns and lay people to support people that were caught in the middle between the North and the South, just the craziness of that time. And he went, uh, he left sometime, I think maybe for the Paris Peace Talks, but then they wouldn't let him back because both the South Vietnamese and the North Vietnamese didn't trust him. So he wasn't allowed back for decades and then back in the maybe about 10 years ago he was negotiating with the Vietnamese leaders to come back and it was really tough negotiation and uh, he was talking about that with us. I was at one of his retreats at Plum Village in France and uh, he was saying at some point uh, the leaders that he was negotiating with changed their stance and cut back on what he had asked for and uh, he felt a lot of reaction coming up in him. And he just went back to his basic practice, which is being with his breath for a minute, for several minutes. And I don't know how long it was, but he said for a really long time, to the point that they were a little like concerned of what had happened, because there they are having this negotiation, and he just sort of turned inward. And it was this thing where he realized he had lost his balance, had lost his peace of mind, 
And he wasn't going to be good for anybody. You know, certainly not good in the negotiation. And so he went back to his practice, even if it seemed weird. And what seemed clear when he returned and started the conversation again was just to give in. And that can be sometimes the most powerful thing in the world. But sometimes when we're frazzled, we dig in when it doesn't make sense to dig in. A lot of harm comes when, not, when we don't know that we can't fight right now. We have to yield so that we can assert another day. Right? That's part of the skill of being in this world. If we're fixed, like never retreat, well, we're not going to last very long. Our effect, our positive effect on the world will be pretty limited if we're not able to really connect with what's on the ground and be able to yield when that's the appropriate thing to do and assert when that's the appropriate thing to do. So I just, that just seemed like a really powerful example. And to remember that yielding and returning to quiet and peace and balance, to see this as a powerful political act. Jack Horsfield makes this point in this chapter. This is not a weak thing to do, to sit every day for 45 minutes or for an hour, to go on retreat for a period of time, even years at a time, some people do. This is not some passive, weak thing that human beings do. It is a powerful, assertive act in the world. We need to see it, we need to value it in this way. So this is the first training for budding superheroes. And the second is learning to face the truth, to commit to the truth. And Ajahn Chah, a well-known Thai Buddhist monk and meditation master, and had a powerful influence on Western Dharma, Western teachings of the Buddha. He died in 1992. He said, the enemy is delusion. So that's the basic problem. So when we do have balance and peace, then the next step is to see things as they are, to be interested in the truth, the unblemished truth. And not, not have any sort of preconceived ideas getting in the way. Just want to know how it is. And even if it means we're confused, like that's okay. Because if it's unclear what needs to be done, it's better to know that, isn't it? Then like, oh, I can't handle that truth, so I'll just pretend this is what needs to be done. Because I'm uncomfortable not knowing what needs to be done. A lot of activists feel impotent or sort of weak if they don't know what needs to be done. It's like not easy. It takes a lot of strength to stay in that place of not knowing. It doesn't mean we're not going to know forever, but in this moment we don't know. So we're just going to hang out there until there's some clarity. Oh, okay. I don't know where this is going, but I'm going to say this. I'm going to do this. Because this makes sense now. That much I know. Beyond that, I don't really know. And we don't like our leaders that way, do we? We like our leaders, you know, that fundamentalists. We want them to know exactly, or at least some of us do some of the time, exactly what's supposed to be done. 
and they never waver. We don't want them to ever waver because that's a sign of weakness. You know, that they that their idea of what needs to be done actually comes out of the moment. We want them to be fixed in space. Same with like the Constitution, right? It's like the founders, that somehow they knew everything and, and some people know exactly what they meant. And that's what we should do. Instead of like, well, what's right? What makes sense? Let's see. Let's try something. And let's pay attention after we try and see if it actually turns out to be right. Because if it was wrong, let's own that. Let's try something else. But this is what we call weakness now. So this commitment to truth, not commitment to being right, but commitment to the truth, including confusion, including not knowing. There's a beautiful statement that uh, Dwight Eisenhower made that Jack Kornfeld has in the chapter. Some of you might remember as he was leaving the, his second term. Spoke about just uh, the terrible thing of this military-industrial complex and all the money. Every dollar we spend means somebody's not being fed, somebody's not getting educated, and all of the intelligence that goes into making weapons. Right? That's intelligence that's not devoted to making the world a better place. So we really you know, can appreciate people who could speak the truth, who could see and speak from that place of clear seeing, that commitment to truth. Sure, it would have been nice if he had started to speak that way at the beginning of his first term, but still, it's better to have said it than to not have said it. Even today, that's a radical notion. Nobody's talking like that these days. Well, maybe a few, but very few people. Or certainly not too many people with power. And then the last thing, really important is training, you know, to be a superhero. Jack Corfield calls envisioning liberation, envisioning justice. Doesn't mean it's going to happen tomorrow, and it doesn't mean that we need it to happen on any time schedule, but it just means that we can envision a beautiful world. And the reason we can envision it, it isn't that we're, like, uh, have blind hope or sentimental. We can envision it because we know the world is made up of intention. This world is literally coming out of our minds. And you know how we can have a really despicable, horrendous fantasy for a picture or imagining, and we can have a really beautiful imagining. So when we, um, you know, when we take on this training, we commit to peace and balance of mind, we commit to the truth, and we commit to imagining a beautiful world. And it's not like once we're in an ongoing way, we're imagining a beautiful world. We're holding it lightly, but we're, you know, we're not dwelling on what's wrong, we're dwelling on what's possible. Because we know it is possible for people to be generous. We see it all the time. We also see people being really stingy and greedy, but we also see generosity. We see patience. We see kindness. We see people going beyond the boundaries that were conditioned in as children. We see people going beyond those things like sexism and racism and nationalism and classism and fundamentalism. 
we see how people can have respectful conversations. So we know it's possible. Why not tune into those beautiful things and put together a vision that's quite beautiful because that will be enlivening. That's a nice thing to talk to each other about. And it, and it waters those beautiful seeds in each other. You know, we start to inspire each other if we can tell that story. So just to end with uh, an encouragement to find a way every morning or every night before you go to bed to just um, commit to being a superhero. I mean, you don't have to say it in a silly way like that, but to somehow uh, not, like Sharon Sulfur says, don't be afraid of aspiring to be, to live, to be a cause for real peace and beauty and goodness in the world. No matter the consequences. You know, in the Buddhist sort of cosmology where there's, you know, lifetime after lifetime after lifetime until there's no more pollution, you know, we got a lot of time. <laughs> so, so don't, don't get confused by, well, how is that going to happen in, in our got at best, you know, 30 years left. I'm 54, you know, and maybe a lot less, who knows. So it seems easier just to try to get by, you know, and have a relatively pleasant existence. But if we think about, like, a lot of time left, well, then it makes sense. That Robert Fairman, a Buddhist author, um, one of the early monks, he later disrobed uh, in the Tibet tradition back in the early 60s, and also father of Irma. <laughs> one of those little trivia pieces. But anyway, he had this great story about, like, if you're in the subway in New York City, where he teaches at Columbia, you know, and you know you just have two stops, you can handle the oppressive feeling of being around a lot of people you don't know and maybe don't trust. And then if you imagine you're going to be in that subway for eternity, you're going to have a completely different strategy. If you're just there for two stops, you just sort of, Suck it in. It's like they say, right? It's like, you know, you get tight, you, you stare at the floor, you don't make eye contact with anybody, and you just survive. Two stops. Just two stops. But if you're going to be in that subway car for eternity, you're going to start making relationships, you know? And you're going to learn how to get along. And you're going to learn how to include everybody. Because there's no getting out of it. So this is like part of our vow is coming from that place. Like, there's no getting out of this predicament of being a human being. As this, this is at least how it's talked about in the Buddhist cosmology. There's no getting out of this. That's where this motivation comes from. We have every incentive to live and practice in a way that includes all of it, the whole catastrophe. So we just have a little bit of time left. Sorry, I spoke a little longer than I wanted to, but if anybody has any questions or comments? What comes to mind? A few minutes. Yeah, Dan. I'm really fascinated by the topic because uh, it very comes down to, um, I think it's pretty powerful stuff, that in order to handle the long-term possibility of world success, you have to understand that it's settled on a level that you will fail. Not understand your own failure, you know, undermines your success. And it's so antithetical to what's taught out here. It's all as a headshot. 
and uh, it's scary. And it's same with love. You know, when it's really falling in love, you know, we're really giving ourselves over to this movement of transparency, undefendedness, uh, aliveness. You know, and it's scary to be really alive because we don't have the control that our little box seems to give us. However constricted it is, it does feel familiar and, you know, we recognize it. You fall in love, Lewis? But we can all appreciate somebody in this room for sure is falling in love. At least one person, you know, and somebody and maybe many are falling out of love. And they're both wild trips, you know, and it's the same thing with maybe you're falling in love with the new Green Party candidate, you know, or falling out of love with Obama or, you know, whatever. It's just we're all being thrown around by life in so many different ways. And either we can fight that and be deadened by it or we can be enlivened by how wild it all is. Our lives are really wild. So we'll pick it up again next week, but let's just take a few seconds. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.